Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Good evening, everyone. Yeah, I know what time it is. We know it's 6 o'clock on the East Coast. We've got a lot to get to in the next, not one, but two hours. We begin tonight with a nation divided. On one side, we have President Biden calling for unity and championing the country's progress on beating the pandemic. Today, all across this nation, we can say with confidence, America is coming back together. History tells us when we stand together, when we unite in common cause, when we see ourselves not as Republicans or Democrats, but as Americans, then there's simply no limit to what we can achieve. And then on the other side, there's Florida man still holding his MAGA cult rallies and spreading the big lie about the election. Now, we're not going to play what he said, not just because it's really, frankly, sad how much of a sore loser he is, but but because his claims are downright dangerous at this point, he knows exactly what he's doing, riling up his supporters and then giving them hope that somehow he'll magically come back into office, which is never going to happen. And he's gone even further than usual in the past week, asking the menacing question, who killed Ashley Babbitt? putting the officer who shot Babbitt as she attempted to breach the doors leading to the speaker's lobby where congressional staffers were cowering in terror, putting that officer in danger. That officer has been cleared of all wrongdoing. But it's the latest line that Republicans like Paul Gosar are trying during congressional hearings that are supposed to be focusing on our national security. It's pretty obvious that Republicans are doing everything they can to show loyalty to the mango Mussolini and not to their country. And it's not just the ones currently in office. The Washington Post reports that Republican candidates for state and federal offices are increasingly focused on the last election, running on the falsehood spread by the Florida man and his allies. But there's nothing that really exemplifies the undying fealty the Republicans have to their dear leader, like J.D. Vance, an Ohio Republican Senate candidate and author of Hillbilly Elegy, who CNN caught deleting past tweets critical of Trump. He told Fox today, I regret the tweets and regret being wrong about the guy. I think he was a good president because, of course, now he wants power. Because right now, there is no Republican Party without Trump. There's just nothing that exists without him. So Americans are facing a choice between the real world, where coronavirus cases are falling and the economy is bouncing back, and a fantasy world on the right, where the election was stolen and everything is a culture war. Alexander Burns of The New York Times points out that in another age, the events of this season, namely Biden's success, would have been nearly certain to produce a significant shift in American politics. But these days, it's hard to imagine that such a political turning point is at hand. He notes that a moment of truth appears imminent. It's one that will reveal whether the American electorate is still capable of large scale shifts in opinion or whether the country is essentially locked into a schism for the foreseeable future, with roughly 53% of Americans on one side 
and 47 percent on the other. And joining me now is Eugene Daniels, White House correspondent for Politico, Susan Del Percio, Republican strategist, and Joan Walsh, national affairs correspondent for The Nation. And thank you all for being here. Eugene, I'll start with you because you cover the White House. And I wonder, I wonder if they get that. I do sometimes wonder, just talking to people close to the White House myself, whether they're fully aware of what a schismatic country they're running, one in which all the great things that President Biden talks about and does simply wash over about 47 percent of the public because they think QAnon is real. Yeah, I mean, usually what I find is that the people who are a bit older, who've been with Biden for longer, tend to think that the country can come back together, tend to think that unity is not, you know, is, is something that can is in our reach even, even, you know, sometime this year. And the younger folks are a little bit more cynical, right? These are people who um, were on this campaign. This may have been their first or second campaign out there in the world talking to folks. Um, we spend a lot of time on, on Twitter and Twitter's not the real world, but it does show and exemplify the schism that exists in the world. And so I think the White House, some people know and some people don't, but I think all of them, um, with President Biden at the very top, do want you know this country to come back together. They talk about it a lot more than I thought they would. You know, we're about six months in, and you think that, okay, the they've they stopped talking about the fantasy, they've stopped talking about all the love, and they haven't. They really, you know, that is something that is at the heart of this, mostly because of Joe Biden. So they know what's going on, but I think they are hopeful that because of who Joe Biden is, they can overcome coming. But it is, you know, like you said, very, very difficult to see that actually happening. Yeah, I mean, it's nice to want that. You know, Joe Walsh, you you wrote the book, What's the Matter with White People, which I wish everyone would read because, you know, and I know your publisher was probably not thrilled with the title of the book. I know we talked about that. But I mean, you wrote that during the Obama era. I mean, the reality is that there's been this fantasy out there that we could reach this age of sort of magical reckoning, racial healing, that because we elected President Obama, that would happen. All we got was a backlash that's so ferocious that now 47 percent of the country is kind of clinical, right? They really do think there are a lot of them who really think that Donald Trump is going to literally be magically reimposed in office in August. That's going to happen. They think Mike Lindell is sane, right? I don't know how you fix something that that an entire political party has invested itself in maintaining. We don't know. We never have and we never had to, but we have to now. Joy, and I, I don't I don't know what it's going to take. I mean, you know, I look back to that book that I wrote and, you know, I, I, I saw Trump coming. Um, but I don't think I saw it being as horrible as it is and, and, or saw it being as, uh, huge as it is in terms of there being roughly 47%. Let's just say 40. It, that makes me feel better. You know, it's <laughs> not 47%, but 40, but you know, th- that's more than I ever thought. Um, would be part of this kind of what I what I perceive as anti-American um, and kind of dangerous group of people that doesn't believe in democracy anymore because they no longer outnumber us. Um, and, and that's sort of the bottom line of it. That's really the foundational point uh, of how we got here. You know, and uh, Susan, you know, in another era and time, we call this fascism, right? When you have this 
absolute devotion to a singular leader, when you have this desperate need to elevate the race that's considered sort of the top dog race, right, in the society, and to hang on to their power at all costs, even violence, there's this belief that political violence is okay. There was this terrifying poll out in February that a really shocking percentage of Republicans believe it's okay to use violence to overturn an election if they don't get the results that they want. It's like, and AEI took this poll. This wasn't some liberal group. It wasn't Daily Coast. It was the American Enterprise Institute took this poll and found that like four in 10 Republicans are okay with the idea of political violence. And let's talk a little bit about Texas for just a moment. You remember Alan West? I do. Alan West was cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs before Trump came along. He was saying take a bayonet and march to Washington because President Obama was there and he's black. Okay. Alan West is now in Texas. He's now running against Greg Abbott because he doesn't think Greg Abbott is far right enough after all that Greg Abbott has done. He has argued that Islam is not a religion, but a totalitarian theocratic political ideology. He has suggested black communities were stronger and better during segregation. So he's anti-Dr. King. He's called democratic handouts, quote unquote, the most insidious form of slavery remaining in the world today. And he's viable, Susan, in your party. Thoughts? He also believes in QAnon and uh, succession. So, and, and here's the thing, you talked about fascism early on. Really, I, I've been looking for a new word for Trumpism because I hate it, because I think it goes deeper than just Donald Trump within the Republican Party. And I keep coming back to the same name. It's neo-fascism. Forget Trumpism, it's neo-fascism. That's what the grassroots of the party looks like right now. And in some ways, in a really weird way, people who believe in, dem- in democracy, you know, normal Republicans and Democrats and independents, they should be almost happy Adam West is, um, Alan West is running. Why? Because he may win. And if he wins, he will be a very uh, weak challenger who, to whoever the Democrats put up. We are seeing these really ultra right wing candidates being put up by Republican parties and not just in Texas, but in Ohio and other places on, in these congressional seats that you, you know, the wackiest wackies are going to win the Republican primary, but they're going to lose in general elections. And that may not yeah. just help Democrats, but it will help the Republican Party in a way because it will burn it down, maybe not in 2022 or 2024. But after enough losses, we can see maybe normal returning because those neo-fascists will be out of the party. Or, Joan, uh, you know, and, and again, I come back to your book. Part of the, the premise of it was that over all of these decades, people who benefited from the New Deal have turned on New Deal programs because those programs became extended to people of color, that they were for all of these New Deal ideas until black and brown people started taking advantage of it. And they said, no, I'm not for it. The same thing has happened to voting. Right. They were all for voting by mail. And then when black people vote by mail, they're like, well, we can't have that. So I wonder no. if it's so clear that somebody like an Allen West couldn't win in the environment Republicans have created? Oh, I think he could win a, a primary conceivably. I, I, I just can't, I can't imagine. I mean, I, I guess I just have too much faith in the people I know and love in Texas that he cannot, you know, w- win. But, uh, you know, and, and Greg Abbott is such an awful conservative person. How can anybody be to the right of Greg Abbott? I mean, that's what my, my mind was going around all day. Like, where, where's he going for this vote? Well, well, well we just heard 
We, we just heard today, Eugene, that, you know, even the governor of Ohio was sending troops to the border. It's now all shtick. It's all theater. It's we have to show that we're going to stop the brown people. We're going to stop the blacks from voting, stop the browns from coming. It's all about this very race, national, racially nationalistic sort of movement. And I do wonder whether Democrats that you talk to on the Hill are prepared to fight that kind of war. Because what I hear when I talk with Democrats is that, well, we have these programs and we provided this much in infrastructure and then we're going to have this kind of a bipartisan deal. And by golly, we're going to build a bridge over there. And then there'll be also a a pothole that's going to get filled in over here. They sound like it's 1993 to me. Like, I definitely don't see the sense of urgency. But when I talk with people who know about fascism and know about how democracies deteriorate, their hair is on fire. Is the White House and are the DTRIP and the DSCC, are they are any of their hair on fire? I mean, sometimes, you know, sometimes their hair's on fire, but but usually what I hear is like exactly what you said, them focusing on the policies and what proposals they're gonna put forward and this is a good bill. That's good, right? Like that is like that's a good thing sure. for the country, right? That, that it's, you know people are focusing on policy who are up here supposed to make policy, but it, it does seem like there's a little bit of a disconnect, right? You hear all the time, um, you know, sometimes you hear from President Biden, you hear from President Obama that we're not as um, split as we think we are, and all of that, and it's. You know, for reporters, we're already a little bit cynical, so it's it's already hard to believe that. But when you talk to people, when you talk to lawmakers, and as we've been watching since January 6th, as the whitewashing of January 6th happened, and they said it wasn't that bad, it was tourists that were kind of hanging out and look at at the single file line as they walked in, um, look at people opening the doors. When they talk about, you know, the voting restrictions that have been put put forward, and they talk about the election being stolen, which we all know, and I feel like I have to say this every time, it was was not that is a lie from from Donald Trump. This it, it is a different environment, right? It is not the same, and that's why you know folks like President Biden, also folks like Joe Manchin, you know, when they're talking about compromise and they're talking about bills, it's like, well, this is a different Senate, this is a different country, and I'm not sure even what they do about it. How could they, you know, counteract some of those things? Um, because in the Republican Party, you know, it's it's about personality. That's why Trump won. That's why um, Alan West has a, has a better chance, and I think people think he does, because it's about personality. It is about the politics of contempt. Who's tougher? Who's stronger? Who says the toughest things? And that is a lot of what's happening on the Republican Party side right now. And even when you talk to some Republicans who you would probably think would be okay with all of that personality, they're not either. either. They're also very concerned. Well, they're very concerned, but what are they planning to do about it? What are they willing to do about it? Yeah, well, right now, nothing, right? Is that they, right. Say, they say it behind closed doors. <laughs> they say it behind closed doors because they are so scared yeah. of that personality, right? They, uh-huh. They're scared that what they kind of build and what they built up with former President Trump is going to swallow them whole. And so they feel like they're between a rock and a hard place. And even the, you know, the, the chair of the campaign arm on the House Republican side, we did a playbook interview with him months ago. And he said, you know, he doesn't want Donald Trump in the primaries kind of mucking about. He said it wouldn't be helpful. You know what I mean? So he said that publicly, and that is exactly what's going to happen, because just like was said a little bit ago, they're worried that they're going to have these far-right candidates, the Marjorie Taylor Greens, the Allen Wests, win the primary and then lose a lot of seats when really Republicans should win in 2022 based off of history. And so they're, they're worried that Donald Trump mucking it up is going to mess it up for them. <laughs> and that's yeah, the thing, Susan. Go on. Yeah, I was just going to say, because what's the point if, if Liz Cheney, I mean, she's a conservative's conservative, right? She's speaking out. 
no matter how many Republicans from Washington speak out, it doesn't matter. They know that. They know that it does not matter if they speak out. Now, whether they should do the right thing is a whole nother issue. But politically speaking, they can't change it. This has seeped into the grassroots level within the states, within the counties, so much so that the, the folks in Washington, they're, they're there by the, the graces of those committees, not the other way around. They they don't they're not the heroes to those folks. Joan Walsh, I'm going to ask you to try to, to to work with me, ride with me on a different course, because the John okay. Birch Society existed. Right. And I'm only going to I'm only going to age myself. I remember what the John Birch Society is. And the John Birch Society seemed unstoppable when they basically ran the same Trump playbook bananas, crazy conspiracy theories. The idea right. that the president of the United States was being captured by the communists, you know, that the drinking water had fluoride in it that was allowing mind control. OK, this was a real yeah. genuine threat to the Republican Party in the past. And you know what? I don't like Ronald Reagan, but Ronald Reagan eventually said, yep, nope. Nope. There were some real hardcore oh, like great. white supremacists in at the National Review who were like, nope. I'll deal with we. I don't like segregate. I don't like desegregation either. Don't like the Civil Rights Act. But nope, you can't be in our party. Joan, couldn't they just stand up and have some cojones? I don't think there's enough of them who have cojones or whatever, you know, whatever it takes. I, do, I don't think there are. I, I, I don't think it's going to happen. I, I think we're going to watch them go down. And I really admire, is, I admire what Susan's trying to do. You know, I really yeah. do and want to know more from her. But so, well, then I'll, I'll give you the last word on this, Susan, because you're in this fight. You're still a Republican, right? I think you're still a Republican. I and I, I, I and I talk to Republicans like you all the time who say the same thing. My party is burning. It's burning like like it's gone straight to hell. And no one seems to have an answer as to how you pull it back. Do you have ideas on how to pull it back to at least sanity where we're just fighting about tax cuts again? You, it needs to burn down. It literally needs to be demolished before you can go in and build it up again. And, you know, the people who actually say, why, you know, please stay Republican are Democrats who like to say, let's argue back tax policy because they know you need a strong Republican Party. Right now, it's not strong, but it needs, it really does need to, to be burned down to the ground so it can come back up. But that also means there has to be people willing to keep their Republican credentials to be there when it's time to build it up. It's it, but they're silent and that's not helpful. Not everyone is willing to go on TV and do what you're doing tonight, um, Susan. And, and meanwhile, neo-Nazis are marching in Philadelphia. So that's where we're at. Uh, Eugene Daniels, Susan Del Percio, Joan Walsh. Thank you all very much, friends. OK, we're just getting started on a big two hour edition of The Readout tonight. And up next, white nationalism, as I just mentioned, goes mainstream on the right with racist marchers, talk show hosts and office holders all spreading their racist gospel right out in the open where you can see them. Perfect. The readout continues after this. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. 
and you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. White nationalism is increasingly coursing through the veins of the American right. Over the weekend, roughly 150 white supremacists marched in Philadelphia, clashing with pedestrians and setting off smoke bombs. Police said they were chanting slogans like Reclaim America and the election was stolen. You catch that? These modern day Klansmen were chanting that the election was stolen from the disgraced former president. There's a reason for all this, of course, the orange man and his administration. Stephen Miller, who's currently helping sue black farmers on behalf of white farmers, brought them out of the shadows by parroting their talking points, talking points that they fear that they hear on Fox News from Tucker Carlson, which in turn is magnified via social media by a constellation of QAnon devotees. According to the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, QAnon is using racist propaganda in an apparent attempt to appeal to a wider audience, particularly suburban women. For more, I'm joined by Mia Bloom, who wrote that article. She's a professor at Georgia State University and co-author of Pastels and Pedophiles, Inside the Mind of QAnon. I'm also joined by Malcolm Nance, MSNBC counterterrorism and intelligence analyst. Thank you both for being here. And Mia, I want to start with you because, you know, QAnon, when I first heard about it, uh, because a friend uh, of mine has a family member that's caught up in it, who's um, somebody who's seen to be a normal sort of professional, who sort of burst into this weird ideology. Um, I think I didn't really understand how much of it was based on not just anti-Semitic tropes, but racial tropes. Talk a little bit about that. I fully expected that QAnon was going to be anti-Semitic because it has elements, you know, a global cabal and talking about George Soros or Janet Yellen. And it also talks about blood drinking, which these are all things that have been um, Jews have been accused of for hundreds of years in Europe and through the church. But when we started looking last summer at the Save the Children campaign, and, and I'm a supporter of Save the Children, the charity. The real one. And yeah. so I thought, wait a second, all these children are white and all the Save the Children children are not. And so we did a systematic study because I needed data to show that they were using these racist tropes that go to, let's say, the period of um, restoration uh, where there were stereotypes of the black brood who was going to rape the white woman or kidnap the white woman. And so this is like heart and soul of QAnon. It's uh, and, and just to be clear, for those of you who are unaware, because you're living your lives and trying not to pay attention to this, QAnon is basically the belief that the world is run by a cabal of uh, of pedophiles who kill children and drink their blood, I guess, to stay young forever. Maybe maybe they're also vampires. I'm really not sure. But that the person who's going to unmask this devilish conspiracy is a. Uh, is Donald Trump, who can barely read a cue card and couldn't run casinos in Atlantic City. But somehow he's going to break this massive cabal. So that's the theory. Um, you know, in the previous block, Malcolm, I, I talked about the fact that mm. if this was happening in any other era, we'd be talking about fascism. And people get uncomfortable using the F word here about the sort of global reach of all this. But we just saw these neo-Nazis marching in Philadelphia. And the group, other than Black Lives Matter, which has the word black in it, which freaks people out, I guess, uh, the, 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 the big opponent of the right is Antifa, which is basically short for anti-fascists. 
So the people that they despise the most and think are the most dangerous are Black Lives Matter, a plea for black people not to be murdered by police, and anti-fascists. So am I unfair to say that we're talking about essentially American fascism? No, not at all. Anyone that can, you know, see with their eyes understands what's going on here. We are in a neo-fascist era in American politics. You know, back in 1939, 1940, there was a formal fascist movement which openly supported Adolf Hitler and called for American, uh, you know, independence and, you know, isolation away from Europe's war, which Hitler had just invaded, uh, called the America First Movement. Uh, and it was championed by people like John, you know, um, uh, Lindbergh, uh, you know, the famous flyer. They had a rally in Madison Square Garden in which George Washington was juxtaposed with Adolf Hitler. These people were fascists. But what we've seen is after World War II, you know, when they were essentially run to the ground, there was a rise in the 1950s and 60s of these very small fascist groups that turned into terrorist groups like the Christian Identity Movement. What we are seeing now is a merger of every white nationalist trope and group and ideology bound together by the crazy QAnon conspiracy theory into a American neo-fascist movement led by a fascist president of the United States. Look, if I were doing an intelligence assessment of, I don't know, Hungary, I would be coming up with these exact same lines of, of, of investigation, which would be bringing us to these conclusions that there is a fascist movement, not just in the United States, all over Europe, which is actually funded, surprisingly, by Russia uh, in France. Italy, Spain, neo-fascist movements everywhere are out to take down American democracy. And, and you know, it's the, the sort of irony is if you read, read up on it, I mean, Hitler was inspired both by Mussolini's original fascism, which is where it started, not in Germany, but also by the United States in which Americans invented the idea of coding anyone with African lineage as Negro and is thus both enslavable um, and as segregatable based on even one drop of black blood. Look it up. It's actually true. Uh, Mia, the, the, the other piece. Absolutely. Um, it, Mia, the other piece that you get to, and I think this is important and scary, I think, in a really fundamental way because of how religious the United States is as a country. How much of this QAnon movement is pushing its way into the evangelical movement and targeting evangelicals to try to recruit them? Well, that's the scariest part, because it's making inroads into every religion, despite the fact that it's anti-Semitic, it's drawing Orthodox Jews, it's anti-Catholic, it's drawing Latinx Catholics. But the largest group are the evangelicals, that around 34, 35 percent of evangelicals believe that there's a blood-drinking cabal. But remember, evangelicals are also a proselytizing religion, and they'll go out to Papua New Guinea or, or, or Ghana or wherever they're going, and they're going to bring this ideology with with them. And so we are seeing a metastasis of QAnon to 85 different countries. And the reason I wrote the piece about racism is as they are spreading their tentacles to get into South and Latin America or into Africa or among African-American voters in this country, I want people to know how racist QAnon really is.
And, and oh, you know, yeah. Malcolm, the, the, the thing is, the other piece is that for this kind of a movement to take hold of a political party, where the leadership seems just completely impotent to do anything about it, Kevin and those guys, Mitch doesn't want to do anything about it because he's just like, am I going to get power out of this? If I'm going to get power, whatever. But if you want to be fascist, I don't care. But Kevin seems helpless. Meanwhile, there's a poll that the Globe, that Global Morning Consult did where it found that 26 percent of Americans qualified as highly right-wing authoritarian. That's twice the share of the number two countries, Canada and Australia. Four in 10 Republicans versus an, um, in an American Enterprise Institute, that's a conservative organization, they did a poll that said political violence may be necessary. If elected leaders will not protect America, the public must do it themselves, even if it requires violent actions. Add to that, uh, I, I want to know how concerned you are, given that data, Malcolm. The guy who used to who runs my pillow, which was a ridiculous figure, but you can be ridiculous and dangerous. He has said that on August 13th, Donald Trump will return to office. He will be reimposed in office, which is a QAnon belief system. He also claimed there will be many down ticket senators who will have different election results. They're talking about stealing elections and Trump being returned. How worried should we be about a January 6th style event somewhere in the United States if, if, when he is not reinstated Trump? I don't think we should really worry about the August date, because as we know, these things are come and go. They, they, they've had these dates before. It's the post-August period that I would really be watching as a terrorism professional, because, you know, Donnie O'Sullivan, I'll give a shout out to our brothers at CNN, did some interviews with these people, and they said that if Trump is not reinstalled, then they're going to have to start talking civil war. I've been monitoring their communications since last December. These people are already many of them committed to the concept of overthrowing American democracy and inciting civil war. All you have to do is watch AR-15 ammunition prices, which went skyrocketed last year from 21 cents a bullet to almost $1.25 a bullet now. Many of these people think that there is an apocalypse coming. Let me tie this back into QAnon. I think you were mo rather modest in what you said QAnon was. They believe that there is a global cabal of people who are eating, kidnapping, and sex trafficking children who are the entire Democratic Party, all liberals, all progressives, and the fundamental way of dealing with them is a mass genocide of all liberals and Democrats or bringing them to Guantanamo, uh, Guantanamo or having what they call the day of the rope, which actually came from the Turner Diaries, the book Timothy McVeigh uh, read at the time. These people are the farthest edge of the farthest extreme, and they are now the core identity of the Republican Party. The Republicans tried to co-opt them in 2018. QAnon co-opted the Republican Party. They just removed the letter Q. They don't allow Q t-shirts. But the belief system of the Republicans now, full on QAnon. Yeah. And Day of the Rope, speaking of that, you know what they brought to the Capitol on January 6th to, quote, hang Mike Pence? Hmm. A rope. A real one. Hmm. Mia Bloom, thank you very much. Malcolm Nance, thank you as always, my friend. It's still ahead. Conservatives are trying to turn critical race theory, speaking of this whole cabal of lunacy, into a catch-all label encompassing any and everything they disagree with. Scholar and author Ibram Kendi joins me to talk about being anti-racist. Next, stay with us.
Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Republicans believe they have found the perfect ah, wedge issue to take into next year's midterms and scare white suburbanites back into their camp. Critical race theory. They're co-opting the term and applying it to basically anything to do with anti-racism. They're also applying the term to black public intellectuals who are not even involved. People like Ibram X. Kendi. I recently spoke with Dr. Kendi and asked him directly if he is indeed a critical race theorist. So I've certainly been inspired by by critical race theory. I, I certainly admire critical race theory, but but at the same time, I wasn't trained on critical race theory. I didn't go to law school, and and so I don't necessarily identify as a, as a critical race theorist. Yeah, and right. You'd have to go to law school to be one, right? And you just made that point very well. But they don't either. They don't know really what it is either. But here is Senator Josh Hawley, uh, sort of one of the worst sort of offenders here. Slamming you by name. Dr. Ibram Kendi wrote this. The only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. The only remedy to present discrimination is future discrimination. That's right. That's what he said. Think about that for a moment. He's saying that he's opposed to equality under the law. Dr. Kendi and his followers are in no uncertain terms advocating for state-sanctioned racism. <laughs> okay, now, given the fact that they can't seem to quote Dr. King accurately, I'm, not, I'm just going to assume that they're misquoting you or getting the wrong context. Can you explain, please, what uh, that quote, even if it's an accurate quote, what it means? Sure. So, so, Joy, we recognized as a nation that elderly people were, were dying at the highest rates, uh, were the most vulnerable to, to COVID-19, so, so we decided that it was best to provide vaccine to those people first. No one described that as a bad policy, but young people could have said, hey, you're discriminating against us. And we would have responded, well, older people are dying at the highest rates. Should they not receive vaccine first? But if we would have then started thinking about, oh, black people are also dying at the highest rates from COVID-19, you know, maybe they should also receive, maybe they should also receive vaccine first. Maybe we should have a, a, a system in which those who have the those who have the greatest needs are provided with what they need. But they call that reverse discrimination. They call that discrimination. They're against that. How are we going to create equity and justice for all? if we're providing the same resources to middle-income people as we're providing to billionaires. Yeah, this is the same uh, theory under which they have gone after black farmers receiving um, benefits when they have only 14 percent of the land at this point. They've been stripped of their land. But then they're saying that white farmers need to get all the rest. All the benefits need to go to white farmers or it's reverse discrimination. They're doing that in court. Stephen Miller is part of that. Um, I just want to ask another couple questions just to make sure that we're getting everything clear. Do you believe that white Americans are inherently racist? Oh, I do not. And, and indeed, in How to Be an Anti-Racist, 
I make the case that we shouldn't believe that anyone is inherently racist or that we should identify anyone as a racist. And I make the case that racist isn't a fixed category. It's a descriptive term that describes what a person is being in any given moment based on what they're doing or saying. And so if a person is saying Black people are lazy, they're being racist. But in the very next moment, they're advocating a policy that creates justice uh, and and equity for all. They're being anti-racist. Okay. Uh, And and do you know of um, any schools that are teaching that white Americans are inherently racist. Have you ever heard of any school that's teaching that anywhere? <laughs> I haven't. And, and and indeed, I would speak out against that school if, if it was doing it. And we now know that one of the groups um, that is under attack from the same people who are attacking you are military, the military, particularly military generals, including the secretary of defense uh, and the joint chiefs of staff chair, uh, General Milley. He's now been attacked by Donald Trump. Matt Gates, uh, who never served and probably wouldn't have the guts to serve for 10 seconds, nor would Tucker Carlson, nor would Laura Ingraham. They've all gone after him. Bill Kristol has called that out as sort of proto, sort of ground level fascism. Um, he said Trump voters are pro-military. Why are Trump and Carlson attacking the military? But, uh, but the attack is on woke generals, the brass, and disloyal citizens in charge. It's an, an attempt to appeal to aggrieved troops and vets and to divide the military and subvert civilian control. It's a classic move for authoritarian, from the authoritarian playbook and also from the fascist playbook. What do you make of the fact that, the, that people like Trump wanted to use the military to attack Black Lives Matter protesters specifically? He wanted them—and Milley refused, by the way. They got in a cussing match. He said, I'm not doing that. But that they don't believe that the military should study whether there are racists and white nationalists in the military because some of those folks attack the Capitol. What do you make of that dichotomy? I mean, I, I think it's 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 pure sort of insanity that's that's presented as 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 logic. And the fact of the matter is 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 American armed forces have a have a white supremacist problem, and and the leaders have recognized that, and those leaders have decided that the way in which you address that issue is by teaching people to be anti-racist, by teaching right. people to recognize the racial groups as equals. And it's fascinating, and we've learned this year. The Republican Party isn't pro-cop because if they were pro-cop, they would have responded differently to to the Capitol insurrection. And they're certainly we're showing now they're not even pro-military. These are these are wedges and terms and constructs they use uh, just uh, and they lie about them just as they lie about anti-racism and critical race theory and the 1619 Project. And your book really took off after the George Floyd murder. And so did uh, Robin DiAngelo's book, White uh, Rage, or uh, I believe that's the name of her book. Um, Do you think that this, that that the right is using the George Floyd movement and the fact that white Americans saw what happened to George Floyd and said, oh, my God, we need to question whether or not there is structural racism in our society, that that's what this is about. This is about white Americans having woken up to what happened to George Floyd, and now the right wants to stop that. I mean, if you're an elected official, if you're a white elected official who has been instituting policies that have harmed the majority of white Americans, 
And all the while, you've been convincing those very white Americans that you're fighting for them, that you're instituting policies that help them, that you're, you're teaching them that the cause of their pain or people of color, you're not going to want them to wake up. You're not yeah. going to want them to understand racism because then they're going to see you as a problem and vote you out. There you go. There you go. And if you're anti-anti-racist, think about what that says that you actually are. Ibram X. Kendi, I'm so glad you could be here. Author of How to Be an Anti-Racist. Thank you. And up next, the crisis in Haiti, a severe shortage of COVID vaccines, a wave of criminal violence in its capital city, and yet another tropical storm. All this ahead of crucial elections in September. Stay with us. Over the weekend, Tropical Storm Elsa brushed by Haiti as it moved through the Caribbean. Haiti has been pummeled by hurricanes before, but a direct hit from a storm would be even more dire this year. As the AP points out, a recent spike in gang violence has forced thousands of people to flee from their homes. So the Civil Protection Agency is running low on basic items, including food and water, which could lead to a catastrophic situation the next time Haiti is hit by a serious storm. To make matters worse, COVID-19 is still raging through the country, with very few Haitians vaccinated and gang violence keeping patients from getting basic COVID care. I'm joined now by J.R. Gaillot, Democratic consultant and vice president of Phoenix Political. And J.R., my friend, thank you for being on. You, you and I have been having this conversation. You've been really, really uh, pushing because you, you've been saying this, is, this story has got to get out. What is going on in Haiti that Americans need to understand? Uh, well, Joy, thank you very much for having me. Really appreciate it and uh, giving the opportunity to talk about what's going on in Haiti. Haiti right now is in the middle of a protracted political crisis. On top of that, you have uh, massive insecurity, uh, a constitutional crisis, and, and a lot more going on. The gang violence has taken over. You have people that have been displaced from their home, and the people are suffering, and that needs to change. And, and what can the U.S. do? I mean, there is a, a long history. We won't even go into the, you know, Toussaint Louverture, uh, you know, overthrow of the French that led essentially to the creation of New Orleans and to the annexing of the entire western part of the United States because of the cheap purchase that uh, uh, Jefferson was able to make in the Louisiana Purchase, all really because of Haiti and the punishment that was inflicted on Haiti ever since, being meaning that they had to pay reparations to France and I think are still paying reparations to France for the loss of all of those enslaved people. What kind of condition, number one, is Haiti in? Can a, a presidential election change it? And what could the U.S. be doing to help? Haiti is in a is in a terrible situation right now. Uh, the insecurity, uh, there's a gasoline shortage, there's an electricity problem, and people are afraid to go out into the streets because lives are being put at risk every day. So that's a problem. Second part of your question is what can the U.S. do? Well, President Biden visited Little Haiti and promised to turn things around for Haiti. I'm a firm believer that the president will deliver on his promise. He does deliver on his promises. Haitians want action. They want action now. Unfortunately, things can't go as fast. But for the election portion, 
recently, the OAS was down in Haiti and uh, they recommended no, an election to happen. We know that. That is the way to democracy. But with the current situation, when you're looking at COVID-19, when you're looking at the resources and the insecurity, there is no possible path forward for a referendum election or an actual election to happen because nobody would participate. So what yeah. the U.S. can do is help move things along and change policy towards Haiti. That has to happen. You know, and, you know, having lived in Florida, I know that whenever there's a crisis in Haiti, it very quickly metastasizes into a migration crisis. And, you know, the, the Jeb Bush government was was challenging enough, but Jeb Bush at least had some sort of a relationship with the leadership in Haiti and had his own favorite candidates when folks were running for president. Now we're dealing with DeSantis, who has taken up the 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 Trump line, which has we as we know, has included a very anti-immigrant, anti-migrant line. What kind of a crisis would we be seeing if Ron DeSantis ends up dealing with a migration crisis in the state of Florida? It would be a tremendous crisis. It would be uh, a monumental proportion. Back in the 80s, there was a problem with migration happening. We are on the precipice of seeing that return where people are going to risk their life, jump on ships and try to reach U.S. shores, or they're going to go to Central America. Uh, and and do the trek all the way up to the border to try to get it. The reason that is happening is because the life condition of Haitians are not sustainable. These people are simply looking for a better opportunity, an opportunity that their government has failed to deliver. And one of the biggest reasons is corruption. And Haiti, whoever the next president, I understand President Moise just nominated his seventh or eighth um, prime Minister just a few hours ago. Uh, Anti-corruption laws is the first step uh, to begin the process, the rehabilitation process. And then the United States must work with the Haitian government to stabilize the trade imbalance deficit. Haiti doesn't need rice, doesn't need coffee, doesn't need peanuts. All that stuff is produced in Haiti and water. Yeah. Um, so... But vaccines would be nice. Uh, and I hope that the Biden administration or someone from it is taking a listen, sending some vaccines there would be uh, helpful in helping with the political situation there. J.R. Gallo, my friend, thank you very much. We will, we will stay on top of this story. Really appreciate it. Okay. We have a big second hour of the readout coming up next, including new details in the January 6th investigation as we get ready to mark six months since the Capitol was stormed. Also, Trump appeared to admit to the charges in the new indictment against his business. Plus, outrage over the suspension of track superstar Shakari Richardson. Just weeks before the Olympic Games, she's been training for all her life. Don't go anywhere. Good evening, everyone. We begin the second hour of the readout tonight with a grim commemoration. Tomorrow will mark six months since the January 6th insurrection, the day Donald Trump incited a mob to attack the U.S. seat of government and prevent the peaceful transfer of power. They descended onto our capital, hunting for the vice president and the Speaker of the House, intending to capture and assassinate elected officials. They built a gallows and chanted, hang Mike Pence. This also means that we are six months into a vast Republican undertaking to gaslight the American people into memory holding what went down on that horrible day, a day President Joe Biden has described as the worst attack on our democracy since the Civil War. We've heard Republicans downplay and even flat out deny the violence that left five people dead. 
We've heard Republicans, including their dear leader himself, turn the rioters into victims and martyrs, even as video showed them beating police. We heard congressional Republicans like Andrew Clyde even describing it as, quote, a normal tourist visit and then widely reject a bipartisan commission to investigate the attack, only to stonewall the House Select Committee Democrats launched in its place. What has also emerged in these past six months is a clearer picture of what happened on January 6th, thanks to the government's video evidence released at the request of NBC News and other news organizations. Some of that new video shows police trying to rotate fresh officers to the front lines of the siege. Slowly, guys. Joining me now is Scott McFarland, investigative reporter for NBC4 Washington, Michelle Goldberg, columnist for The New York Times, and Dean Obadala, host of The Dean Obadala Show on SiriusXM and an MSNBC columnist. Thank you all for being here. And Scott, I want to start with you. You've been going through and pouring through these cases against these, um, these insurrectionists, the people who are part of this siege. What are you learning that kind of brings together kind of what we now know about who these people were and why they say they were there? Hey, Joy, good evening. They're from all walks of life in all parts of the country. But in the last few days, going through the court filings, it's becoming increasingly clear if we're on a journey here legally, we're still closer to the starting line than the finish line. Our latest count is 516 federally charged accused insurrectionists. There could be hundreds more. By my count, about 2% of the cases, 2%, have gotten to a plea agreement and just one solitary case has gone to sentencing. So there's a journey still to be made here. But here's the kernel of where the case is right now. There are three large groups of defendants, all accused of being parts of far right groups, the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys and the Three Percenters, all accused of conspiracy, of the plotting and planning coming ready for action January 6th. Those cases largely are in their infancy, but the Oath Keepers, That stands out, Joy. The feds have won some early victories and made some progress there. They've secured three plea agreements from accused Oath Keepers, all three of whom have agreed to help the feds with their investigation to flip. And the prosecutors, Joy, said there are good plea discussions underway with the rest of them. And just to be clear, Scott, have we discerned any ties yet? to lawmakers? Because we still do have Ali Alexander, who is still missing somewhere out in the world. Um, that not to, we don't know that he's been captured that we know of. And he named lawmakers as having been part of it. And we just had lawmakers doing a tour of the border with one of the people who stormed the Capitol, one of the people who's apparently friendly with Marjorie Taylor Greene, a sitting member of Congress. Have any of those connections thus far been made, at least in court? Here's what we can tell demonstratively. The NBC News team here has read through the thousands of court filings, every one of them. Not one iteration, not one mention of a member of Congress by name or otherwise. But here's what we can tell you. We mentioned the Oath Keepers, that they're flipping, that they're helping the feds. Typically in federal prosecutions, when you have defendants flip, it's because they're going to flip bigger fish. Here's the thing, Joy. Right now, in terms of the charges, the Oath Keepers are the big fish. So the provocative question is, who are they going to turn over or what are they going to turn over to the prosecutors? 
Yeah, indeed. And Michelle, the thing about the um, these groups, the Proud Boys, I would say, stand out particularly as an organization that Washington Post and other reporters have talked about as law enforcement looking the other way when they were around, as having weirdly sort of cozy mm-hmm. relationships going into this siege with lawmakers. We've got people in the Oath Keepers that were doing things like providing security for people like Roger Stone, who were around the former president. It's very difficult, other than the three percenters, who essentially are just sort of a, a radical organization— is, do you feel that it's inevitable that we're going to have to start talking about elected officials in as we talk about these cases? Well, I think one elected official that we should be talking about right now is Paul Gosar, who did a number of rallies with Ali Alexander, seems to have been quite close to him, Has is also, we know, close to the white nationalist Nick Fuentes and is refusing to disavow that association, even though, you know, this isn't sort of nudge, nudge, wink, wink, white nationalism. It is unapologetic. Um, you know, actually, far worse than anything that Steve King um said, except the center of gravity in the Republican Party has moved so far right that where they would have once expelled Steve King in order to preserve, um, you know, what they thought was their image. Now they've sort of come to accept that people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar um, are part of their image. And so, yes, I think that, you know, I, I think it's no secret. Anybody could have seen the rally that preceded this insurrection. They could have seen the people saying, including the president of the United States, we're going to march on the Capitol. I guess the question is whether the coordination went even beyond the already kind of quite shocking level of coordination that we've seen. Yeah, indeed. And Dean, you know, you know, Benito Mussolini wasn't like physically leading the brown shirts to do their attacks either. Um, you know, and, and I, I talked in the previous hour about the fact that we've got to start confronting the uncomfortable F word, fascism, because it, when you marry political violence to supreme um, loyalty to one leader um, and a willingness to attempt to overthrow the government in order to reinstall that person in the defense of one group of Americans, namely white Americans, who this core believe ought to be in charge and on top in whatever the social configuration is. I can't avoid that. You, you've gone even further than that and talked about the fact that we've got to start talking about terrorism. Because as you've said, this has all the hallmarks of sort of an, a, a sort of an al-Qaeda-like leadership that, you know, bin Laden wasn't on the planes either. Look, Joy, first of all, I love that you're not timid about using the word fascism because people have to know what that means. A lot of people just don't know what it means. It's not a common usage term. By explaining it, what it's really about, we understand it's not hyperbolic. The GOP is not a political party. It is a white nationalist movement that's embraced fascism, which means undemocratic means plus violence. That's what we're seeing. Joy, to your other point, Christopher Wray, the FBI director, has testified under oath before Congress. He didn't use the word insurrection. He said this was an act of, quote, domestic terrorism. That's the FBI director. That's the words we should be using. January 6th was an act of domestic terrorism incited by Donald Trump. His supporters who attack the Capitol are terrorists. It's two plus two equals four stuff. Like Ashley Babbitt, all those who attack the Capitol are terrorists because the FBI director has said it was an act of terrorism. Joy, if an Islamic cleric for two months after the election said that the election was fraud, stop the steal, I want all my supporters to go to Washington and stop the steal. And those Muslims attack the Capitol. Are you telling me that cleric would not be charged with incitement? Donald Trump would be leading the screaming for that Islamic cleric to be charged. In what nation can a man incite a terrorist attack on our capital in front of us, radicalize people for two months, 
And his punishment is he's off Facebook for two years and he's playing golf. And he's repeating the same lies that radicalized people at his first two rallies after January 6th, the last two Saturdays in a row. And now he's defending the terrorists. I, intellectually, this is very hard for me to understand what's going on in our country right now, that we're not using the term, not just fascist, terrorism. You're either with us or you're with the terrorists. It is that clear. You know, and, and to underscore that, Michelle, I mean, we did have white supremacists actually march in Philadelphia the day before the July 4th celebration and freely do so. Um, the enemy uh, of the far right, in their own words, are Antifa, meaning anti-fascist. So they are anti-anti-fascist by their own reckoning and say that that is the thing to be. There's been this attempt to create a, an Anglo-Saxon caucus that got, got spoiled because that got out. It becomes really difficult. I, I want to ask you about this Ashley Babbitt thing, because there does seem to be an attempt to make her the new Kyle Rittenhouse, to sort of make her into a martyr. And, you know, we do a lot of stuff on policing here. And there are a lot of police who are a problem. This police officer was not a problem. He defended the lives of cowering, terrified members of Congress who, if Ashley Babbitt, who is a trained Air Force specialist, trained by our tax dollars to kill, she was a military member. If she'd gotten through that door, God knows what kind of harm she could have done. Do you what do you make of this attempt to turn her into a martyr? I think it's um, you know, there was a moment right after this insurrection when it was so raw and the revulsion against it was so intense that you saw even Republicans, Republicans in Congress, but also Republicans writ large wanting to distance themselves from it. And now I think they have a sort of double think about it, right? Because, you know, it's almost like Holocaust deniers. It didn't happen. And if it did, they deserved it. Um, you, you know, you, you have a significant number of Republicans. There was a recent morning consult poll. There's a significant chunk of Republicans who still believe that it was Antifa who, who stormed the Capitol. There's actually a, a slight majority of Republicans who blame Democrats in Congress for the insurrection, at least for inciting the insurrection, which makes no sense whatsoever. And the number of Republicans who blame Donald Trump, who believe that this movement was representative of Trump's movement, has declined quite a bit in the last six months. And so, again, so you sort of have Republicans, I think, of two minds. On the one hand, they want to disavow it and distance themselves and pretend they had nothing to do with it. But at the same time, this martyrology around Ashley Babbitt is immensely telling that really their hearts are with the insurrectionists. And they think that what they were trying to do was Donald Trump certainly thinks what they were trying to do is good and just. And that the only problem is that it didn't succeed. Yeah. And Dean, you now have a third of uh, Republicans who filed to run in, in 2022, echoing the very big lie that brought those very people to the Capitol. Uh, do you think that Democrats, I asked this in the previous hour, I'll ask it again. Are Democrats alarmed enough about this? Th this terrifies me. I don't know if no. they're alarmed enough about it. No, they should be watching your show every night, Joy, to understand the stakes and how to frame this, because it's about framing. Democrats don't grasp the fierce urgency of now Martin Luther King talked about it with voting and civil rights. We're talking about it for our democracy, sustaining and prevailing and enduring going forward. Those are really the stakes right now. You have the GOP. They're not fearful of Donald Trump. They agree with Trump. They're at his rallies cheering. You have people at his rallies interviewed afterwards saying that if Trump is not reinstated, there will be a civil war. I don't hear Republicans denouncing those people. So we've got a situation where Democrats should be out there saying January 6th was an act of terrorism incited by Donald Trump. You were either with us or against us. I wrote about this for MSNBC Daily, begging Democrats to use the term. We're in the 9-11 20th year anniversary. 
use that language. It's visceral. Terrorism moves people. Insurrection is more intellectual. People debate it. Democrats are not doing a good job in making it clear this can't be politics as normal in our nation. Yeah, and, and I, I should note for our audience that Benny, Tom, uh, Benny Thompson, who's the head of this new commission, was on with Ali this weekend. He's, and he was asked whether he was prepared to subpoena the former president. He said he's prepared to subpoena anyone who's identified based on the facts and circumstances. Um, Jim Clyburn, who is the, uh, the, the House uh, majority whip, um, has said that he wouldn't like to see a former president testify, but if it gets to, if it comes to that, he'd be down with it. Let's go back, uh, and I want to end this just on the legal cases um, with you, Scott. What should we be looking for? You, you noted 516 total cases. Is there is there sort of a commonality that kind of gives us a sense of where they're going? And if they're flipping people, uh, my, my always question is flipping people to what end, right? Is Are we talking now about essentially naming these three groups, the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, and the Three Percenters, in essence, as domestic terrorist groups, because they seem to be the focus. Now, flipping to what end is a great question, Joy. We haven't seen people flipped and then them named in new cases. But here's what the FBI director has said unequivocally to Congress. There are hundreds more investigations in addition to those who are already charged, leaving open the possibility there could be hundreds more arrests. But I want to add one point. We talk about January 6th. This hour is the six-month anniversary of what happened at 7 p.m. D.C. time, January 5th. Somebody left live, active pipe bombs at this hour, January 5th. There have been no arrests, Joy. In fact, there have been no suspects detailed in that case. Yeah, that is another sort of open thing. That and the Ali Alexander missing in action. Where in the hell is this guy? There are so many unanswered questions. We need more than just a commission. We need a lot more uh, to find out what happened. Scott McFarland, always. Thank you so much. Michelle Goldberg, Dean Obadala, you both are great. Thank you so much. Up next on The Readout. Did, did, did Donald Trump just admit admit to the serious charges facing his company? I mean, that would be dumb, right? But did he just do that? Plus, Texas Republicans decide that a history museum, get this, is no place, no place for a discussion of Texas history. Absolutely not. And the growing outrage over the suspension of track star Sha'Carri Richardson. It, if it's a dumb rule, why not just change it right now? The readout continues after this. The disgrace to twice impeached former president was back out there over the holiday weekend on his revenge tour. Just days after his company, the Trump Organization, and CFO Alan Weisselberg were indicted for an alleged tax scheme. And a caveat, we're only playing sound of this guy, because normally we wouldn't, but we're going to do it tonight because he actually admitted it. They go after good, hardworking people for not paying taxes on a company car company car. You didn't pay tax on the car or a company apartment. You used an apartment because you need an apartment because you have to travel too far where your house is. You didn't pay tax or education for your grandchildren. I don't even know. Do you have to? But does anybody know the answer to that stuff? Okay. But they indict people for that. Apparently, Trump still talks like Marilyn Monroe, breathily and weirdly. Uh, but he also was following the lead of his two adult fail sons, Don Jr. and what's his name, in saying, what's the big deal to try and spin the Fox News audience to Trump's side? Crime is rampant. People are leaving the, the, you know, the city in record numbers. It's dirty. It's disgusting. New York is no longer what it is. And they have an entire district attorney office and attorney general's office 
that's focused on three and a half million dollars to take down a political opponent? This is a farce. It's a disgrace that they spent millions of dollars and years Instead of prosecuting actual murderous thugs on the streets of New York, they go after their political enemies. Unfortunately, people dodge taxes all the time, and this is unfair, is actually not a solid argument in a court of law. Sorry. And according to The Washington Post, the Trump Organization provided a roadmap for its own indictment, keeping internal spreadsheets that tallied the payments that were being hidden. Prosecutors treated the spreadsheets as the accounting equivalent of a confession. Joining me now, Joyce Vance, former U.S. attorney, and Suzanne Craig, investigative reporter for The New York Times. And, you know, Joyce, I love the fact that they essentially wrote their own indictment with spreadsheets. Your thoughts? Well, this is an absolutely fascinating sort of commentary tour for the top executives at the Trump Organization to be making right now. Of course, they haven't been indicted yet. Alan Weisselberg is the one who's indicted in this particular indictment, at least so far. But it's hard to figure that there aren't criminal defense lawyers for any number of people who've been out there just face palming as they hear this sort of commentary. You know, what you expect from the owner of a company when there is an indictment like this is either to deny that any of the misconduct occurred or to express outrage, right? I'm shocked that there's gambling in Casablanca. This sort of approach saying, well, gee, it's not much of a crime, is it, is really unusual and, and probably won't play well if it ever has to play in a courtroom. Yeah, it's sort of a I only robbed the five and, dime, five and dime argument. You know, it's not like I robbed like a rich company like Walmart. Like that doesn't help you if you rob the five and dime. And to stay with you for a moment, Joyce, this is one of the things that Trump argued. Never before, Never before, as New York City and their prosecutors, or perhaps any prosecutors ever, anywhere, criminally charged a company or a person with fringe benefits. Uh, Leona Hemsley's ghost would like to have a word. She was literally convicted on tax evasion and hiding fringe benefits, including renovations on her Connecticut estate, which were billed to the Helmsley businesses and not reported. So, Joyce, just to be clear, folks do get prosecuted for this in New York and elsewhere, right? People do get prosecuted for tax evasion in both state and federal systems. This is a strategy, though, Joy, that we have seen Trump use before, right? This notion of not an important crime, people don't get prosecuted for this, is like an instant replay of what happened during the Mueller investigation when Trump dismissed obstruction of justice as a process crime. Oh, it's not something that people should worry about. And so here he is again appealing to the court of public opinion, thinking that somehow that will help him with federal prosecutors. And while that might have worked for someone who was cloaked in the protection of the presidency, it will be very interesting to see if public outrage um, by his base will have any impact on what is now the indictment of Alan Weisselberg. I, I yeah. sort of doubt it. You're right. It shouldn't in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a normal country. OK, Suzanne, let me bring you in here. The indictment. Let me read a little bit of a quote regarding these um, spreadsheets. Spreadsheets For certain years, the Trump Organization maintained internal spreadsheets, tracked the amounts it paid for Weisselberg's rent, utility and garage expenses. Weisselberg received the benefit of these payments and the Trump Organization internally tracked and treated many of them as part of his authorized annual compensation, ensuring that he was not paid more than his preauthorized fixed amount um, of gross compensation. You've had a good look into sort of the Trump tax sort of weird world. Is this a common way that the Trump Organization paid people? Is it the tax returns that revealed all of this or literally is it these spreadsheets? 
No, I think that what we're seeing and what the the documents in the um, the indictment that we see are very much internal work product of the Trump organization. So we didn't have sort of visibility into them when we looked at his taxes, but they've got a lot of documents that they're now putting together. And you know, right now these are allegations. They're in an indictment. They may make it into court one day, but anytime you hear two sets of books. I mean, wow. I think, you know, it's a, it's not a good starting point. And as a journalist, you always want documents. Like this was a very document-based indictment. And witnesses are can be great, but they're unreliable. You know, documents are there and you can't you can't impeach the character of a document. You can argue about its veracity and you can debate it. But it's great yeah. when you're a prosecutor to go into a case with this many documents, which they seem to have. And Suzanne, um, you know, Michael Cohen, who was on the show last week, talked about there being millions of documents, millions um, that he said just having worked there and been Donald Trump's lawyer that he could say there were. And he also testified before the grand jury. And I wonder if in going through and you're looking as, you know, just from a journalistic standpoint at the way the Trump organization operated, what Michael Cohen and and, and, uh, others who have worked for Donald Trump have said is that essentially this was a way of, of underpaying people, of paying people relatively low salaries and essentially compensating them with presents, presents for them, presents for their kids, a house to live in, that kind of thing. Did you find that kind of thing with, when looking sort of at the sort of internals uh, of the Trump organization, particularly the stuff that Mary uh, Trump provided? We, did, we didn't see so much that because we had the tax return information. And so they're, they're, you know, this is now what they actually didn't tell, tell the yeah. tax man. But this is, you know, what it, what it had the effect of doing is just reducing the amount of taxable income that the IRS could go after. So you're getting all these perks on the the one side and they're just the way they're being accounted for is not fully reflecting the taxable income. And I have to say, like when I when I heard those remarks on Saturday, I heard two things. I heard one thing Joy was talking about, which is that they're going to try and minimize this. And oh, yeah, but it's small ball. But the other thing I heard, which was very interesting, and I think it's some of the contours of the legal defense that you're going to start to see them you know, present, which is you know, he he needed an apartment to stay in yeah. New York. And so we gave him that, that these were actually some of them were legitimate. I don't think we're going to have an argument where the grandchildren's tuition is. But I think yeah. on some of the bigger items, they're going to argue that these were legitimate expenses. And there's going to be a debate about that. Should this should this end up in court? And if you were a lawyer, uh, Joyce Vance, representing Don and Eric uh, Trump, not that they'd pay you, so you may not want to be their lawyer, but let's say that you were. Would you advise them to keep talking? Because it does seem that the Trump organization is pretty much a family business. And one might assume, if you read Mary Trump's book, that, you know, Donald Trump and his father were in this habit of being like, live in this apartment for free or for cheap. It's a thing that they kind of did. If you were Don and Eric, would you talk on TV or would you advise them to talk if you were their lawyer? You know, if I was um, in the position of being their lawyer, Joy, I would give them the same advice that I would give to anybody else who's under investigation in a criminal case. Don't go out in public and run your mouth. If you're going to talk with prosecutors or investigators, do it with your lawyer present or better yet, through your lawyer with you not being in the room. Uh, This is just really insanity. But you have to wonder Does this signify that they believe that they are so untouchable that they can get away with anything that they really believe that by catering to the court of public opinion, they can outrun the courts of the state of New York? It is really baffling to see this kind of conduct.
Well, if I had to guess, I would guess the answer to that is yes, Joyce. They do believe that. They've, the dad got away with it. Donald Trump has gotten away with it his whole life. They probably do believe that. So we shall see how it plays out. Joyce Vance and uh, Susanna Craig, thank you both very much. Still ahead. Remember the Alamo? Well, Texas Republicans want you to remember it as they remember it in their bedtime stories, not the way it actually went down. A shocking suppression of facts and free speech in the Lone Star State next on The Readout. Okay, you know how Republicans love to rage against censorship and cancel culture? Well, they don't actually walk it like they talk it. Take a look at what's happening in Texas. State Republicans led by Republican luminaries like Governor Greg Abbott, who can't even manage the state's electrical grid, forced the abrupt cancellation of a book event at a state history museum because they didn't like what the book says. Forget the Alamo examines the role slavery played leading up to the Battle of the Alamo. Now, naturally, the mere mention of slavery triggered the fragility of Republican leaders who just happened to be on the board of the museum. Now, Abbott didn't have the courage to publicly condemn free speech, but his deputy, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, carried the bag. In a tweet, Patrick said, I told staff to cancel this event as soon as I found out about it and called it a fact-free rewriting of Texas history. Just let that sink in. The lieutenant governor of Texas, an entire state, proudly announced that the Texas State History Museum was no place for history? Yeehaw. Join me now, Chris Tomlinson, columnist for the Houston Chronicle and co-author of Forget the Alamo, The Rise and Fall of an American Myth. And I have to read your response uh, to Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan, uh, Dan Patrick, because actually I retweeted and commented on it and then literally like DM me and come on my show. That is uh, one of the reasons that you're here is I was like, I need to book you immediately. You wrote back, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick takes credit for oppressing free speech and policing thought in Texas. Bullock Museum proves it is a propaganda outlet. As for his fact-free comment, well, a dozen people, uh, professional historians disagree. And you you hashtag, of course, forget the Alamo in Texas legislature. Please tell me the story of how your book event with your co-authors, Brian Burrow and Jason Stanford, got scheduled and then canceled. Well, the Bullock reached out to us as soon as they found out we were doing this book. Uh, we had spoken to their program manager months in advance. Uh, once we had the publication date of June 8th, we uh, talked to them again. They said, yes, we want you here. And we had a lot of demand for speaking, including one from the Writers League of Texas. So we thought, let's do a joint event. Let's let's get these two groups together. We're going to do it virtually anyway. And the Bullock said, OK, we'll supply the website. We'll register uh, the attendees and we'll make this happen. Uh, then a right-wing extremist group called the Texas Public Policy Foundation starts tweeting about it. Uh, they are particularly incensed by the uh, content of our book. So um, we checked in with the Bullock, and they were like, oh, yeah, no problem. We've, we've done controversial stuff before. Besides, the Wall Street Journal had a SMU history professor talk about how great your book is. H.W. Uh, Brand's UT uh, history professor, he said, all this stuff about slavery, this is old news. The most interesting part is the modern part of our book. And then the lieutenant governor drops the hammer. He either calls up the um, book, uh, says, no, you've got to pull out. We get a call from our publisher. 
you know, this is off. Writers League of Texas says, oh, we can we can scramble. We can get you on a Zoom call. And we're like, no, there's not enough time. And um, and that's when I went to Twitter. And also a wise thing to do in this modern age, the thing to do is go public, go to Twitter. And so what is the status now? Are you going to be able to discuss your book? I know Texas has now put in this thing called the 1836 Project, creating a nine member committee to promote patriotic education, patriotic history. They basically want to limit the way that that that, that her historical events are taught. Essentially, they have to be taught in a way that I guess, bigs up and, and sort of ha- makes a hagiography of Texas history, not a real history. Are you going to be allowed to discuss this book in the state of Texas? Well, I mean, clearly, uh, I'm I'm standing in Texas. And I'm talking to you. Uh, we're hoping to do some uh, book events at uh, private bookstores. But I've got some real questions about how far this ban goes. Am I banned from state universities? Uh, the Texas Book Festival is held on state property every year. I'm on the board of advisors. Am I not going to be able to discuss my book there? Uh, I've got a lot of questions for uh, Governor Patrick. And um, we're talking to some attorneys who have some questions, too, about his uh, attitude towards the First Amendment. Right. The First Amendment is supposed to prevent government um, from pressuring uh, Americans on the basis of their speech or intervening in, in the uh, the use of, of free speech. So that seems like a pretty straightforward case. Let's talk about your book itself. What is the premise of the book that is so terrifying to the old 1836 Project folks? Well, we make the argument that the myths that were taught to people my age and younger, frankly, in Texas schools are hurtful to the growing uh, plurality of Hispanics in Texas. Uh, It paints a picture of freedom-loving Anglos fighting against dark-skinned people for liberty. Uh, It completely ignores the role that slavery played in motivating this, uh, because we point out the inconvenient fact that Uh, Mexico, as a multicultural uh, society that had just overthrown Spanish colonial rule, was trying to outlaw slavery. Uh, The President Santa Ana said before he crossed the border into Texas, I am going to go free the wretched souls held in bondage in Texas. And uh, to say those things in Texas is apparently um, was going to get you slapped down. Yeah. I mean, well, it's the same way that they don't like to talk about the fact that in the War of 1812, the British were offering freedom and land to any enslaved Africans who would join the Crown's fight against the Americans at the time, and that the British governor of Virginia was offering to completely free all the slaves through his own Emancipation Proclamation. We don't get that history either. And and do you believe that at this point, the goal of the government of Texas is to suppress history because part of this 1836 law says they have to give deference to both sides. What would be the deference that one could give the other side in an argument where slavers and uh, slaveholders were fighting a war to hold on to their slaves? What 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 deference could you give to that in, in, as a journalist? What, what, how you, do uh, you know, I, I don't know. And, and that's the problem. This all grew out of a column I wrote about Texas needing to rebrand itself. We cannot have the image of the long, tall, white cowboy uh, fighting and enslaving people of color as our brand anymore. But unfortunately, uh, conservatives, particularly um, you know Governor Abbott, Governor Patrick, their identity is caught up 
in this mythology. Uh, Governor Patrick has a collection of John Wayne memorabilia in his office to give you an idea of where his politics are. Yeah, don't don't read him the interview with which John Wayne called himself a white nationalist. He may not like that because <laughs> he might nope. he might find that not to give deference to both sides. Uh, t- thank you, Chris Tomlinson. I have already ordered your book. I can't wait to get it and read it. Thank you so much for accepting my Twitter invitation. I appreciate you and good luck with the book. Thank you very much. All right, up next, more victims are found in Surfside, Florida, after the remainder of that building, of that collapsed condominium was demolished over the weekend. Live reports next. Search and, re- search and rescue efforts resumed today in Surfside, Florida, after pausing this weekend so crews could demolish the remaining parts of the Champlain Tower South. Authorities said it would allow them to get into previously inaccessible areas. Within the past hour, the death toll rose again to 28, as more victims were found in the rubble. 117 remain unaccounted for. Joining me now is NBC News correspondent Megan Chesky. Uh, what, Morgan Chesky, so sorry. What is the latest? Yeah, Joy, good evening. Right now, you can see crews staying busy. This is a 24-7 operation here. And as you mentioned, they are able to go deeper into that rubble because of that demolish, uh, the demolition that took place yesterday that officials say was highly successful. That remaining portion of Champlain Tower South fell right on top of its current footprint. And just to ensure that it didn't compromise the current search efforts, they put a large, thick rubber mat over the area they had been searching so that should any debris fall that direction, they would be able to knock it off, pull that mat back, and go right back to the layer that they were currently working in. Now, as a result of this demolition, they've been able to move heavier equipment inside the interior areas uh, and go into the areas that they had not been able to access before. We're now on day 12. I spoke to a famous search and rescue worker today. I said, what do you tell the folks who realize how far we are now uh, and regarding a chance of survival? And she says, we tell them what we believe, and that is we are holding out hope for a miracle. Uh, Of course, people here pointing to other instances where uh, people have survived upwards of two weeks, even longer in some instances in these collapses. Uh, But this is absolutely a search and rescue mission right now. They are not calling this a recovery mission just yet. The families of the missing, meanwhile, staying in a nearby hotel. Um, We did reach out to get their thoughts on the demolition. They were briefed prior to it taking place. uh, And many of them understand that this was just a necessary step in the process to try to go deeper into the pile. We know that as it stands right now, about 40 percent of the debris that's above ground has since been removed. And in fact, we know that's about 4.8 million pounds of concrete. Uh, An incredible job that's already been done, but that still lays ahead of them. And of course, all this with a very careful eye on Tropical Storm Elsa as it turns its way towards Florida. While it is expected to go to the western side of the state, there is a concern that a lightning and or wind could pose an issue here. Anytime a lightning strike happens within two and a half miles of this area, crews have to pause for 30 minutes before getting back on top of that pile. Uh, And they know more than anyone just how precious every second is. Joy? Wow. Wow. Uh, Morgan Chesky, thank you very much. Really appreciate that. All right. Well, coming up, the latest controversy surrounding American Olympic athletes of color exposes the sneaky little racism these athletes are encountering at every turn. ESPN's Bomani Jones joins me next. 
Pan Olympic year, when black women athletes are posed to become the faces of Team USA, gymnast Simone Biles and Jordan Childs and sprinter Allison Felix, to name just a few. The biggest topic right now is the star athlete who potentially will not appear at the Games. Sprinter Shakari Richardson, the 21-year-old American track star, following her one-month suspension from the sport after testing positive for THC, the chemical in marijuana. Richardson has accepted the suspension. She won't appear in her solo event, the 100-meter dash, and told the Today Show she takes full responsibility for her actions. But a lot of people are questioning why weed, of all things, which, to my knowledge, has never made anybody faster, is keeping her out of the games. Richardson's punishment also comes amid a host of arbitrary rules and criticisms seemingly only directed at black women athletes, including a ban by swimming's governing body of the soul cap, a swim cap designed for natural black hair. And hammer thrower Gwen Berry, the daughter of an Iraq war veteran, mind you, who's facing calls to be removed from Team USA from the MAGA crowd for protesting the national anthem at the Olympic trials. As for Shakari Richardson, fans want to see her run in Tokyo, a move to a move on a move on petition. Let Shakari run. Calling the marijuana rules arbitrary and outdated has already gotten nearly half a million signatures. Joining me now is Bomani Jones, sports journalist and host of the ESPN podcast. The right time with Bomani Jones. Always great to talk to you, Bomani. Okay, do we have the the clip of um, Shakari Richardson on the stage? Let's play that really quickly. as much as I'm disappointed, I know that when I swim on the track, I don't represent myself. I represent a community that has shown me great support, great love. And to y'all, I, I feel y'all. And so I apologize for the fact that I didn't know how to control my emotions or deal with my emotions. Sitting here, I, I just say, don't judge me because I am human. I'm, I'm you. I just happen to run a little faster. I mean, Belmonte, her mom had just died. She found out from a reporter. What is going on here? Well, I mean, as far as the suspension itself, it's kind of textbook and kind of hard to get around. Like, if you fail that test in that time when she did, these are what the consequences are. Like, it's really hard on this one. This is not one that I think that the drug testing people had the luxury of being able to just be like, okay, let's act like we didn't happen. That was not going to be it. Like, to me, this seemed to be just an unfortunate confluence of circumstances for her where something incredibly traumatic happened to her in the time of competition and she went to a familiar coping mechanism that happened to have consequences. Like, I don't really feel so much that the suspension she's dealing with is her being picked on it for no other reason than she worth a whole lot of money to a whole lot of people. Like, she was about to be the star of the 100-meter dash of this, right? The look, everything else. She was somebody that NBC was going to be able to put out there and get Americans to watch in the Olympics. I feel like everybody involved with some measure of power. I don't think there's anybody that likes this as the outcome. But here's the thing, you know, the Olympic community, they seem like they're quite an arbitrary entity and can pretty much do whatever they want. I mean, this is a 21 year old. My, my youngest child is 21. It, it, I can't even imagine any of my kids being under this kind of pressure. Her mother had just passed away. She finds out in an interview with a reporter. She's depressed. She's dealing with it doesn't seem like any of these athletic leagues, whether it's the Olympics or whether it's the U.S. Tennis Association, has any interest in trying to deal uh, with black women except in a punitive way. Am I am I reading too much into that? I don't feel like this is the example of that. Um, Like, I think that there's certainly room for empathy for her. And again, I don't think there's anybody like when I hear her apology, the worst thing about it to me is that she feels like she has to apologize to us when she certainly does not. And I haven't seen a great deal or a measure of judgment. There seems to be a lot of understanding for how all those things could come together at one time and lead her to where she is. But on this one in particular, things are Mm -hmm. arbitrary. 
but not really with the drug testing policy when it comes in as a dead letter positive. Like once that happens, I don't know how much flexibility you have. Now, you do have examples of other cases where we're talking about somebody that's just too big to fail. Lance Armstrong, for example, where the corrupt cycling body just threw out positive results for him. Exactly. Right? He talks about this now after the fact. But I don't think that the argument is if you throw out Lance Armstrong's drug test, then we got to do it for everybody. Like if we're going oh, to make no, the case no, no, that why isn't that the well, why isn't that the argument? Why isn't that the argument? I mean, you've seen uh, what was the swimmer's name should, who also they, tested positive? There was a swimmer. Uh, what's his name? Uh, Brian Phelps. You know, you people. It, it, it is arbitrary. Well, Michael, Phelps, Michael Phelps got caught. Michael Phelps. Uh, hit ball. Yeah, Michael Phelps got caught hitting a bong at a frat party and did not actually test positive, and then was suspended for longer than uh, Shakira Richardson is going to be suspended at right now. Like I feel like with a yeah. lot of these things. We're trying to make some comparisons, and it's kind of going into a snowball that I don't necessarily think is accurate. So, for example, I think that what's happening with the swim cap is absolutely antagonistic toward black people, and their excuse is just ridiculous. The idea that nobody has ever done this. Y'all been trying to keep us out the water for hundreds of years. You don't even want us to go into water at the Holiday Inn. No, you have not seen a swim cap like that in that case, right? But that and Gwen Berry, yeah, you're going to have people who, who oppose her politics and want her to be removed. But the USLC already said that they were going to be OK with that measure of protesting. So that becomes just the political issue of those people aligning against somebody they would align against otherwise. This seems to me to be a completely separate situation from each of those, which I think are separate from one another. The common theme is black women and the common theme in life generally for black people and black women specifically is being picked on and antagonized by people. I just don't know if you tested positive right at that time, if this is the one that speaks to the antagonism against black women, especially in a sport like track and field where, I mean, that's who out there, right? Like it just so happens this time that they're going down to a white woman. But generally speaking, I mean, it's going to be a black woman that wins the 100 meter dash in all likelihood and Shelly Ann Fraser Price. Like this, this is an event that the, the machine has decided we could have the 100 meters. They gave up on that one a while <laughs> Well, and I will note that Shakira Richardson may still be able to compete in the four by 100 relay, which she could still maybe be able to get a medal um, if she's allowed to do that. I, I have to feel and maybe it's because as a black woman and somebody who has to deal with, you know, black hairstyles and all of the sort of issues that we have. But the swim team, when you combine the fact that they're literally telling black women that you cannot cover your hair in the water the way you need to to protect it, you're not going to be able to compete. You go into the, the attacks on a, a daughter of a, of a war veteran saying that you can't have a thought or a belief about Black Lives Matter. It does feel like an accumulation of arbitrary rules that are being, you know, used only against black women. It is ruining my Olympics vibe, Bomani. It's making me not want to watch. And I've, I, I know a lot of people who feel that way. Yeah. I, and I guess to a degree, I understand that. Like, I can understand how it feels that way for anybody when all of these things come together. But I really do think in the three case by case that we talk about with Gwen Berry, I think her story is more interesting because she there's reason to question whether or not they purposely antagonized her by playing the national anthem while she was on the medal stand at an event where they were not playing the national anthem when people are on the medal stand because it's the American Olympic trials. You play in the same song all the time. They said they played it every day at 520, but she was on the medal stand at 525. That seemed absolutely like an aggressive play against her and try, somebody trying to show her up. We'll never know definitively whether that was the case, but that seems 100% to be the case there. So we've got this in some cases. It's just hard for me to buy into that. Like if you could find me a counterexample of somebody else failing the marijuana test at yeah. that meet and then getting to compete, I could ride with you. I don't have a counterfactual that says that. Well, and I didn't even get into the Nigerian uh, team that they're trying to throw out. It's just a hot mess. But Monty Jones, though, thank you for being on. That's tonight's readout. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. 
and you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.